This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano coming back down to earth from the cosmos. Uh, there are a lot of legal issues that have uh, everybody talking and asking a great deal of questions. Now, we have, uh, in, we have, we're being joined this hour by three experts that know how to break down legal issues from absolutely every corner. It, it's been said at times that the only people who know more about the law than lawyers are people that have been in prison. Well, we're going to do you one better. We have, for the hour, assembled a panel of three lawyers who also went to prison. Uh, Fortunately, they have all found their way outside of prison one way or another. Let me welcome... In studio, uh, Dom Crispino. Uh, he's been a guest on the show before. Ex-attorney, ex-convict, legal commentator, whose recent most most recent conviction was recently oh, vacated. Congratulations on that again, Dom. Thanks, Frank. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming all the way in. That's oh, my pleasure. Uh, also uh, joined uh, in uh, in studio by Andrew McKenna, uh, the author of the book Sheer Madness, a terrific memoir. He is uh, not only a former uh, a former attorney and and prisoner but also a marine veteran an air force veteran former heroin addict and uh as i mentioned a terrific author he's the deputy director of the national council on alcoholism and drug dependence in westchester hello there andrew hello frank good to be with you and dom and uh not yet legally permitted to set foot in the state of new york i don't believe is uh richard luthman former attorney probably best known as the trial by combat attorney uh, he was was on recently with us talking about his own case. He, of course, does everybody in the studio one better. He's not only a state convicted felon, but also a federally convicted felon as well. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Frank. Good to hear from you. It's great to talk with all three of you. Now, I guess the big legal story that folks are talking about in our area has to do with this decision by the Court of Appeals on gerrymandering. This decision came down uh, late this afternoon, and one of the first shows I heard really break it down was on the uh, the Cats at Night show. And they had, just coincidentally, this was scheduled way before the, the decision yesterday took place, they had in studio Ed Cox, who in addition to being Richard Nixon's former son-in-law and the plaintiff in in this case, he was the co-host of the Cats at Night show. This is Ed Cox, the former chairman of the New York State Republican Party as well, breaking down this decision on uh, gerrymandering that came down from the Court of Appeals. Breaking news is that the highest court of New York State just handed down an extraordinary common sense de- decision that's going to give the voters of New York fair districts with respect to the state Senate and with respect to the congressional districts. The legislature, they had used their supermajority to really gerrymander the heck out of the state Senate districts and the same with the congressional districts. The voters of New York will now have fair districts to vote for the candidate they want. You mean you won't have a congressional district in five different counties? (laughs) No, they're going to be compact. They're going to be contiguous. 
Uh, well, uh, what does this mean for the upcoming elections? What does this mean for the date of the primary? I'm going to break down the political implications with Tom Swazi around 4.30. But let me begin with you, Dom. Uh, what was your take on the Court of Appeals decision? There's a Court of Appeals, as I understand it, all the judges that ruled on this case were appointed by Governor Cuomo. It was a 5-3 to three decision, right? 4-3. Four, 4-3, four, three. Four, three, excuse me. So break us down for us. What did you think of the, the merits of the Court of Appeals argument and, and the dissent, if you want to comment on it? I think they got it right. I mean, uh, the surprising thing to me was that Janet DeFury was on the right side and wrote the uh, majority opinion. Um, and for people that don't know her history, she was a Westchester DA. She had been a Republican. Now she's a Democrat, and she was a Democrat at the, point, at the time that she was appointed by Governor Cuomo. Yeah, so uh, I'm, she seems to do politically expedient things, in my opinion. And this one wasn't. You know, this one was the correct call. Uh, those uh, there was a travesty what they did with those maps, um, and and the way they just like blew through the uh, um, the constitutional amendment that required it be done a certain way. Um, I think what it's going to do is uh, the primary is probably going to have to be delayed. I think the the judge appointed a, a master, special master to draw lines. Um, and uh, I got to think that this might the primaries might happen in August now instead of June. Uh, Richard Luthman, you, you've actually I think represented uh, me in some political cases before the Court of Appeals. What did you think of this uh, of this decision from the Court of Appeals? And uh, did you have a chance to read the dissent as well? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the court did get it right. Uh, I don't think that the Democrats did themselves any favors. Uh, uh, talking about this case. I think uh, the Democratic uh, majority leader, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, basically came out and said, we're doing this to, you know, give the Democrats an advantage to get rid of the Republicans. And I think that, you know, uh, almost ironically, I think this actually might help the New York City uh, Democratic delegation in, in, the, uh, in, in the Congress, because the way that the lines were drawn before there was a good chance that uh, New York 11, the Staten Island district, uh, might have went uh, Democrat because it, 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 it uh, fingered up into, into Park Slope and to very liberal parts of Brooklyn. Now it's, it looks like it's going to probably stay Republican, which gives uh, Nicole Maliotakis, uh, uh keeps her seat in, the, uh, in, in Congress as the only Republican uh, in the delegation. But it gives the, the, the New York City Democrats somebody to go to. Uh, to to get their uh, some of their legis- legislative agenda passed if this red wave happens, right. right? So I think it might might actually end up helping the Democrats, uh, you know, unintentionally. But explain to folks uh, whoever wants to jump in on this. You know, I think a lot of people, wherever they fall on the political spectrum, they recognize that gerrymandering is wrong, morally wrong, ethically wrong, and that it really takes away power from voters. But what did the Court of Appeals say here about why gerrymandering is actually legally prohibited? And then the other corollary question to that is, why do the gerrymandered state assembly districts get to stay, but the Senate districts and the congressional districts are struck down here? Whoever wants to comment on that, please jump in. Hmm. Richard, anything <laughs> on you? Well, g- gerrymandering, of course, is is uh, is is wrong. It's something that is, uh, you know, there's, there's a, a basic concept of, of one person, one vote. And uh, the, the whole goal is to not disenfranchise uh, people or groups. Uh, and so drawing lines that, that cut in and out 
based on, you know, certain, uh, you know, areas, certain uh, ge- uh, geographic areas where there's a predominance of one uh, class, protect- particularly a protected class uh, based on race or, 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 or something like that, it becomes a, it becomes an issue. Uh, we see that all over. There's there's a, a litany of law from the Supreme Court down now that the 2014 amendment to the New York State Constitution uh, wanted to try to do away with this uh, this really political uh, gerrymandering by having an independent uh, commission uh, do the work. And the independent commission was supposed to draw lines in a in a in a uh, either an, I, I guess a bipartisan or nonpartisan way. Uh, but they basically threw their hands up. And said, "Well, we can't do this." And uh, they basically failed in in their obligation, uh, what the voters wanted in, in 2014. Everybody agrees that 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 gerrymandering is bad, and we had a legal mechanism in place that the voters put in the state constitution. Well, and and the way that that. Uh process played out, the Democrats that were part of that independent bipartisan commission really had very little incentive to work and come up with a deal with the Republicans because the Democratic state legislature got to pick and draw the lines, which is subsequently what happened. But uh, anybody have an answer for me on why the assembly lines uh, were not also thrown out? Yeah, I, I, I think it's because the assembly districts are smaller. And I think much more responsive to to the uh, the process. The the Senate districts are larger, and and can be manipulated more easily. I mean, that's the logical answer to that question. As to specifically why they were not in there, I really don't know. Yeah, because that was the case even with the the appellate division. Uh, the appellate division situation as well. All right, we'll come back to this. I'm going to ask Tom Swazi about this uh, in the four o'clock hour as well. Uh, big celebrity trial that everybody has been talking about is this Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. A psychologist hired by Johnny Depp's legal team says that Amber Heard showed signs of personality disorder in her evaluation. Yesterday was day nine of this very high-profile celebrity trial in Northern Virginia. Depp is suing his ex-wife for defamation because of an article she wrote for the Washington Post four years ago about surviving domestic abuse. So yesterday, a forensic psychologist took the stand and said she evaluated the actress for 12 hours and that she showed signs of borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. So far, Heard has not yet taken the stand. Here's a little bit of Johnny Depp and what he had to say. My goal is the truth. My goal is the truth. Because it, it it killed me that people that I had spoken with, that I had met with over the years, who I who maybe were in a not such a great position and they needed advice, and I gave them the best advice I could. Um, all I could think of was that those people would 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 think that I. Um, was a fraud and that I had lied to them. Uh, Andrew McKenna, let me begin with you. I know you were a a prosecutor down there in uh, Virginia for a time. What's this case all about? How do you see it going? A couple interesting things to me. Uh, Number one in defamation cases, if Heard can prove that uh, what she wrote and what was published in the Washington Post was true, then she will win. It's an absolute defense to defamation is truth. I think 
a couple things come to mind. One, it's interesting where the case was brought in Virginia and Fairfax. Uh, that's where the Washington Post is published or printed at least and published um, nationally. Uh, but Virginia has what's called um, an anti-slap law, which strangely ironic to the allegations in this case, but it stands for strategic lawsuits against public participation, basically, um, which gives um, heard greater uh, latitude in making accusations, greater First Amendment protections, essentially. Um, But still, it was brought in there, and then she countersued there as well. Uh, one thing that's curious to me is is how he's going – if he wins, if Depp wins the defamation suit, how he's going to quantify his losses. Clearly his reputation has been injured, but I don't know if um, he can show that he hasn't been given possibilities in, or films and his career has actually been damaged. So it, it sounds like Amber Heard is probably going to have to testify herself in this case then. Oh, for sure she's going to have to mm-hmm. and be very, very convincing. Dom, uh, what's your take on this situation? Well, I have to agree with Andrew. Um, I, I think that um, it, it really boils down to a couple of issues. It's, it's, it's really the truth and, and the damages, even if, even if he prevails on the claim. Um, I, I do have to say, though, that this is, this is really a mirror into Hollywood. <laughs> and, it really is. And uh, it's, it's odd. I mean, after you see so many well, tri- What are some of the highlights and lowlights? What's odd about it? Well, I mean, um, just the testimony and the rambling and the, um, the you know, I, I know you testify on your own behalf, but it's almost like a, it's like a, 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 a sweet, delicious, uh, personal thing in there, you know, and when, Right, and he's testifying with su- such effect. Yeah, it's, it's, you know. well, yeah, he's been accused of overacting. Oh, it's uh, awful. Th- this is uh, some more of uh, Johnny Depp. And it's been six years of trying times. It's very strange when one day you're uh, Cinderella, so to speak, and then in zero point six seconds you're Quasimodo. Richard, how do you see this case playing out? Well, I think that uh, Depp is it has. I think he probably has charmed the jury at this point. Uh, we haven't heard from Amber Heard yet, but I, I think that uh, I disagree to the extent. I think that he's made his case for damages. I think that he said uh, because of the the abuse allegations, I was uh, uh, made guilty until proven innocent. You know, Johnny Depp, I I had built the character of of Captain Jack Sparrow from nothing. I created that character and then Disney dropped me in a heartbeat. And what we've seen in the testimony from him and from the the police officers who responded to the scene, it doesn't appear as if uh, he was engaged in in, in any physical abuse of Amber Heard. Uh, Just the opposite. It looks like Amber Heard was the one physically abusing Johnny Depp. Now, uh, I, I think that uh, he's he's you know he's a totally excellent thespian and, and, it, and it comes across because he's made a clown show out of Amber Heard's lawyers, especially when uh, with with respect to hearsay objections uh, and with respect to just uh, turning their questions that they are trying to make him look bad on their head. There was one point in the trial where they asked him about doing drugs with Marilyn Manson, and he said, "Yes, I did cocaine with Marilyn Manson." And then I gave him some pills to make him shut up. 
And everybody started laughing. <laughs> I think I think he's charmed the jury, and I don't think Amber Heard is going to climb out of the hole that's been dug for her. Her body language, too, um, sitting there at the defense table is awful. So, I mean, obviously she's got to know that uh, Johnny Depp has money and can hire good lawyers. Why do you think she, if this wasn't true, the domestic abuse allegation, why would she go about making a claim like this in such a public way, uh, knowing that uh, there was going to be some sort of retribution? Do you think it's a reflection of mental illness or is it, it something else here? It could be. But one other point, the therapist that examined her for numerous hours didn't find any signs of PTSD. So that was one thing that she left out. Um, but I think, you know, this is an extension of their case from years ago in England um, when Johnny Depp sued the paper over there mm. uh, for calling him a wife beater. And so even though that was the case between Depp and I believe it was the Sun newspaper over there, um, they basically had a mini uh, trial between Heard and Depp over that same thing. I think it's ego. I think it comes down to ego. And it's a civil case. So it's did it happen? It's more likely than not. It's the standard, the burden of proof. And once she's sued, she may as well counter it. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, we're we're going to continue throughout the hour with Andrew McKenna, Richard Luthman, and Dominic Crispino. If you have questions about any of the legal cases we're touching upon, uh, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. We'll try and get to as many as you, of your calls as we can. Our panel of ex-attorneys and ex-felons was, it will be in studio for the hour, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Hear ye, hear ye, the coat's in session, the coat's in session now. Here come the judge, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Stop being at first, cause here come the judge. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, breaking down some of the big legal issues in the news, uh, joined by a very distinguished panel of legal experts. They all happen to be former attorneys. Uh, Richard Luthman is joining us. He was on recently with us talking about his case. Richard, any news on your case at all since the last time we spoke? Yes. The uh, Richmond County Supreme Court was supposed to uh, have a hearing on a, on a motion tomorrow, but that actually got postponed until next Friday. So next Friday, May 6th, is going to be a big day uh, for me in Richmond County. And, and if people didn't hear our previous interview, you're trying to take back uh, your plea, which uh, was made remotely due to COVID rule uh, in, when you were in Pennsylvania, which is not uh, permitted under the well, under the statute, right? Well, well, I was in federal custody in right. Pennsylvania. That's that's the big issue. Right. That, you weren't uh, vacationing in the Poconos. <laughs> yes, I was uh, a resident of Allenwood uh, uh, facility. Oh, one of the worst. Uh, well, I, but you probably weren't at the penitentiary, but no, I wasn't in the pen. I was in the, in the low, which okay. uh, it wasn't so great, no but uh, not as bad as the pen. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Uh, Andrew McKenna, the voice you just heard there is the deputy director for the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester. Looks like a lot of people are still doing drugs and uh, abusing alcohol. Andrew, what's the story? You've got to work a little harder, I guess. I've got to work harder and let people know that there's there's hope out there, you know, and. 
um, the National Council uh, in Westchester is doing a lot of outreach, a lot of work, and working closely with the county as well. So, uh, Dom Crispino also here. Also, by the way, a former candidate for New York State Assembly as a Republican in uh, in Manhattan. And uh, you're doing an upcoming debate on the uh, on the issue of uh, Rikers Island. Is that coming up May second? Uh, yes, it's uh, it's with the Rikers uh, debate team. It's former incarcerated uh, people in Rikers. And you were incarcerated at Rikers? I was at Rikers for 20 months. Wow. Yeah, vacation there, you know, three meals a day. Wow. Um, and um, uh, we have a, a team uh, that does debates criminal justice issues. Uh, and this Monday, uh, May 2nd, we're going to be at the Regis High School, debating the Regis High School debating team. Those those high school debaters are tough, right? Oh, yeah. No, that they is are. so yeah. cool that you're doing that. I didn't yeah. know. That's awesome. And uh, one of the judges is actually Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Yes, and the former Commissioner of Corrections, uh, Sheraldi. Wow. Uh, now, speaking of Rikers, since we're talking about Rikers, apparently the situation in Rikers uh, or at Rikers has not improved much at all. And uh, there's some thought that the U.S. attorney, Damian Williams, could actually put the feds in charge of Rikers. What exactly is happening from a legal perspective there? What are the next steps in that whole situation? Well, the judge called the commissioner in, and uh, the commissioner came in, because when a federal judge orders you to do something, The commissioner of corrections. That's correct. Because, you know, most judges think they're God, but federal judges know they are God. <laughs> so, true. Uh, so the they were speaking to the commissioner about what he can do about um, improving the situation there. I mean, sixteen inmates have died in the last year. There's routine uh, routine assaults on officers and staff every day. Um, it's really a situation out of control. There's drugs coming in. There's weapons coming in. There's cell phones coming in. Um, yeah, you, it's it's coming. Uh, and where's it coming in from? It's 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 staff and um, and officers and uh, it, it's a real bad situation all around. But I mean, it's it's not as if the feds are going to be able to flick a switch and magically make all these problems go away, right? No, but they'll 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 implement some changes. I imagine mm-hmm. uh, take some control over the facilities. I mean, there there there's a settlement in place from years ago when the feds stepped in. When Rikers was like overcrowded, once there were twenty three thousand inmates there. I think there's like five thousand now, but it seems worse now than it did then. Mm. Uh, Richard, were you ever incarcerated at Rikers? I wasn't at Rikers. I was. I spent over a year at the MDC in Brooklyn, and I think it's a it's a pretty much a joke that they're going to put the uh, the feds in charge of Rikers because they don't do much of a better job uh, running their own jails in New York. Yeah. The MCC is famous, uh, famously the jail where Jeffrey Epstein was suicided. <laughs> and uh, the M- MDC in Brooklyn is, is basically was, was railed at by the, uh, the chief judge, uh, Colleen McMahon, uh, uh, as being, uh, you know, basically, you know, a little, little better than a third world facility going from, uh, you know, scandal to scandal. With a revolving door of, of of wardens with no real leadership, and when I was at the at the MDC, you know, it was there were the drugs were everywhere. You had uh, cell phones, you know, were, were all over the place. Uh, you, the, the guards were, you know, like they said, the guards are where most of the contraband comes in from. So you have the same problems you have in Rikers that you that you do it in the jails, the other jails, the federal jails. The only thing that they do 
you know, in, in, the, in the federal jails, a little better is they, they tend to lock things down a lot more. You know, they, they keep the whole place on lockdown for, for any reason whatsoever. So that's, that's, I think, what's kept it uh, you know, pretty much uh, in decent shape over the past little bit. Uh, because of the COVID, they use that as a real reason to, get, to keep things from uh, from moving around. But I can't see the feds doing much much better than than New York State Corrections is doing. Yeah, well, a- interesting. Uh, anything you want to add there, yeah, Andrew, as a add, former federal prosecutor yourself? Yeah, I want to add that you know when you're in lockdown, you get bologna sandwiches. So that's a lot of lot of bologna sandwiches. But I'll say this: I have a couple of friends that work at uh, Rikers as corrections officers. One of the most dangerous jobs there is. Mm-hmm. The life expectancy of a corrections officer in the country is 59 compared to what it is for the rest of us, 75. So it's very, very dangerous. I think that they could improve the screening process for some corrections officers, some more mental health um, help for corrections officers. And look, you're going to have a couple bad apples in any profession. Typically, contraband's getting in um, via the hands of very few corrections officers. Uh, so it's a fairly you know dangerous job. I can see arguments on both sides. Yeah, I agree. I agree, uh, and I agree with Richard that uh, the, the feds don't do a great job either. But you know they're a, uh, a do, do as I um, I say, not as I do group. The feds, so they're going to come in gung ho, and uh, probably nothing will happen. Yeah. Well, <laughs> last question as it relates to Rikers. Uh, I think John Katzmatidis actually brought this up on the air. Recently, why do they wouldn't it make sense to have some sort of a a court at Rikers to have expedited arraignments and expedited processes as a processing of people that are housed at Rikers? Yeah, well, they have uh, they have video there. Yeah. So you can be arraigned via video. For some reason, the state system, the city system um, does uh, did that really a slow rollout. They could do most appearances by video. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only appearances you'd be required to are actually at an initial arraignment. But what about an old-fashioned court courthouse? Like, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be fancy. Problem is, you have people from yeah. five different counties there. Uh huh. So you're gonna have to have five different I judges. See. I see. I see. Go ahead, Richard. What are you gonna yeah, do? I was about to say that it's a, you have to. It's the county judges that are the Supreme Court judges that that are going to be the issue in a, a Supreme Court case, obviously. But uh, I think that, and and it, it relates to my case that I, that I have filed. I think that you would need a legislative uh, uh, bill uh, passed in order to, to, to do anything like that, Frank. I think that under COVID, the executive order that was in place, uh, you know, was, was, was limited. Uh, and now it's, it's not even in place anymore. And, and, and arraignments, uh, pleas and sentencing and, 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 and all security hearings are fundamental proceedings there. So to, to not have a, a, a defendant present uh, for those proceedings would be a, under the current law, would be something that's a mode of proceeding error and reversible, a reversible error. So I think the legislature would have to get involved in this. They have Article 182, which allows for, for video stuff for the non-vital stuff, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, if it's just status conferences and whatnot. But uh, upstate in a lot of the counties, 182 isn't even applicable. So I think this, there would have to be a, a state legislative, uh, uh, enactment and signed by the governor in order to remedy the situation. Just on on Rikers, they actually do have a couple of courts. Uh, it's a, they have a habeas part in there for uh, inmates filing habeas corpus because mm. that's the location. It's always in the place where you're located where you file a habeas. And um, I think the Bronx DA uh, occasionally uh, they'll open up a little um, 
because the crimes committed on Rikers are even persecuted by the Bronx, Bronx DA. DA, even though the island has a, uh, a queen, queen zip code. That's one of those strange things. Uh, they, I think they had a part there for a while to do uh, crimes committed on Rikers. Gotcha. All right. Um, uh, we're talking with uh, Dom Crispino, Andrew McKenna, and Richard Luthman. If you have legal questions, you can call in at 800-848-9222. President Biden announced yesterday that he pardoned three people who he said demonstrated a commitment to rehabilitation, including an 86-year-old former Secret Service agent, Abraham Bolden Sr., who was the first black Secret Service agent to serve on a presidential detail. The president also commuted the sentences of 75 other people who are currently serving long sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, Richard, let me begin with you. Your take on President Biden's pardons and commutations, did he get these pretty much right as far as you're concerned? Well, he's doing too little too late, I think. Uh, what he did in 94 with the, with the crime bill that he did in 94 it put a lot of people in jail and, and disproportionately people of color because of, because of drug weights. Um, the Bolden case is, uh, is something that is uh, very interesting because Bolden's claim the whole time was that he was railroaded uh, because he was black. And I, you know, you, you wouldn't think that, you know, you know, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that type of stuff, you know, you know, the FBI, but, you know, could have happened. But, you know, nowadays, the way the FBI is, you're starting to rethink, you know, what happens uh, with the FBI and the, and the, and the federal uh, and the federal government. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think that, I, of course, I think that uh, the Bolden, uh, they got the Bolden case right, but it was, I think it's a long overdue. Uh, but we, yeah, I think Biden is, uh, you know, he, he talked a little bit about, uh, well, a lot of these cases are people who are already on home confinement, the commutations. So they've been on home confinement because of, uh, you know, for marijuana cases and, and, and things like that. So it's not really something that is, uh, so, so huge as huge as it's touted to be because people aren't really like walking out of prison. They're already, you know, on an ankle monitor at their home. Most of the people. That have been Andrew, there has been some criticism of um, of the president for not doing more to clear up the backlog of people who are awaiting clemency for these nonviolent uh, drug offenses. But uh, what was your take on what the president did this week? It's it's he's done too little, and I, I applaud the little bit that he's done, but. We have, as a society, have become so desensitized to these sentences that are absolutely draconian. 15 years, 20 years, life sentences for nonviolent offenses, even for some violent offenses, the sentences are ridiculous. People, we think about 20 years is not a long time. It's an incredibly long time for an offense, especially committed by a young person, Uh and Richard touched on 1994, um, but really the second wave of mass incarceration started in, in the 90s with the crack laws, but really it started early in the 70s and targeted and um, decimated black communities. Um, you, I'm reading now about the marijuana laws in Washington, D.C. in the 70s and um, just arresting people of color. Uh, unbelievably, and sent you know destroying communities, whole communities. Uh, Dom, your take on the president's first pardons? <laughs> he may as well have pardoned nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Bolden is that's right, but you know, how many years later is it? 
I mean, I, I love this when they all pardon stuff. You know, let's pardon John Peter Zenger. You know, <laughs> go back Brutus. You know, from the, yeah. uh, the Caesar assassination. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> uh, let me get your take on another. Speaking of uh, of presidents, another case involving uh, a president. That's uh, Donald Trump. He's been found in civil contempt of court, and they're supposed to start fining him $10,000 a day starting today, apparently because he wouldn't, uh, he wouldn't comply with the Attorney General Letitia James's uh, subpoena. Uh, Dom, did uh, President Trump do the right thing here by ignoring Tish James's subpoena as a legal strategy? Where do you see this going? Well, uh, if you read the accounts of what's gone on, uh, I think the judge got it wrong. Um, you shouldn't have fined the president. No, because uh, basically the the judge was saying that as as um, there should have been a sworn affidavit that they searched these records and, and these places where these documents allegedly are, and nothing was found. No sworn statement was put in. I think the attorney put in an affirmation. An attorney has no personal knowledge, so the affirmation is really meaningless. So the judge said, "Well, I need an affirmation. I need an affidavit from somebody with knowledge that." These things were searched and nothing was found there. And he suspects that because that wasn't done, the search wasn't done or they're not they're playing coy with the documents. So uh, just uh, help me out here. So Tish James issued a subpoena for certain documents. The Trump team says we don't have any of those documents. That's correct. And we looked and we definitely don't have any. Right. And I, I, I think that they were they were um, pegging the documents in certain places. The file cabinets outside Donald Trump's office and that kind of thing. I mean, where does that come from? Probably came from Michael Cohen, but who knows if those things... Those So then wouldn't it be a mistake for them not to simply submit an affidavit saying we looked hard in all these places and can't find anything? Yeah, it looks suspicious. Uh, that That's why it's suspicious. If they had sworn to that, well, the judge would have, well, they say they don't have it. I mean, if they find out later they have it, there'll be consequences. Right, and the judge said that there was not enough evidence that Trump had conducted a thorough search. Right. So it's really essentially anybody proving search. That's he would, right. But maybe even he would have even accepted if the attorney went there and said, "I looked and found nothing." So I mean, it sounds like both of you are saying that Trump may not have handled this the proper way, and his legal team may not have handled this the proper way. They should have, they, in order to avoid uh, being held in contempt, they should have submitted an affidavit here. Yeah, or yeah. at least shown that a, a sufficient search was done to satisfy the the court. But I don't think that ever would have satisfied the court. Uh, Richard uh, Luthman, what do you think? I think Trump's lawyers are screwing up up and down. Uh, mm. Not just uh, me, but I think Alan Dershowitz, Professor Dershowitz, said the first thing they should have done is walked in and and asked for Letitia James to to be recused, to be disqualified from the case, because she ran politically on we're going to get Trump. And uh, there's an appearance of impropriety when you make a campaign promise that you're going to get somebody as a prosecutor, as a district attorney. I don't even think it should be at this. Uh, this should even be an issue. Right. I think we should be arguing about whether the attorney general's office uh, should be disqualified uh, in this case. And that should be the issue. Whether and they could be I, impartial, I really, basically, right? Yeah, I don't think they could be impartial. I think that the standard is an appearance of impropriety, and the appearance of impropriety is, is so great when someone says, we're going to get Trump as as one of their campaign promises. It's almost like the KGB, find me the man and I'll find you the crime. Mm, mm. But if you look at all district attorneys or AGs or any elected law enforcement officer, as they get closer to Election Day, they um, – you know, make more demands to be tough on crime. And this is a trend that we've seen 
since the beginning of, of the Republic, essentially. And um, even judges, the sentences that they hand down, elected judges, that is, the sentences they hand down uh, spike up closer to Election Day so that they can prove that they're tough on crime. District attorneys, the same thing. Uh, not AUSAs on the federal side because they're, they're appointed. appointed. Right, right, right. Makes so, sense. So the argument really is uh, do away with uh, elected, elected prosecutors. Is prosecutors. that what you think we should do? You think we should have no elected prosecutors? Absolutely. Well, Richard, what do you think? I think they would be it would be much better. I, I think that uh, meaning meaning it would be a better system different. not to have elected prosecutors, kind of like New Jersey does. Yeah, I think it would would help out. I think the politics uh, taking the politics out can only help. I think that this case is very different from every other district attorney or, or a prosecutor race that's elected because they say, yeah, we're going to be tough on crime. We're going to be tough on on this area or that area, on burglaries, on drugs, on this, on that. This this case, Letitia James says, I'm going after this specific person. Right. Right. Be tough on Donald and Trump. that's that's where <laughs> yeah. it crosses the line. This, yeah, this it's unprecedented, Trump, really. Uh, uh, yeah, Sorry, uh, Dom, uh, you know, I know, if memory serves, you once announced that you were running for district attorney in Manhattan. Uh, the Manhattan DA's office responded by indicting you. Um, do you agree with these guys that we'd be better off without elected prosecutors? Frank, it's unanimous. Really? Yes. Uh, I, I think elected prosecutors is a recipe for disaster. See, I, I like elections. And again, I'm, I, well, you I, love elections, I, I'm, I'm the only person here not, you know, never to have been uh, under indictment. But I um, I don't I think it's co- totally inappropriate to do what Tish James did and say that, uh, oh, I'm going to go after this person. I'm going to investigate them and then to actually go after them. That to me is an egregious conflict of interest, which is why I agree with you guys that the Trump team should have made a motion to recuse. But, um, you know, I've seen appointed prosecutors that can be just as out of control uh, as as elected prosecutors. I think what well, we what we need. Frank, you have to re- remember, I don't think there's a there's a D.A. around. That doesn't in New York that doesn't have a, 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 a case out there that that becomes questionable. You look at uh, at Joe Hines in Brooklyn and John Kennedy O'Hara. That yeah. was, uh, you know, that guy went through 10 years of hell. Yeah, uh, it, was just, it was a political vendetta. There's a lot of times when these 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 elected political people that, that become district attorneys, they were political hacks before and they remain to a certain extent a political hack to their, their core. And they, they use. Their, their power as a district attorney to do political things, politically motivated prosecutions. It's a, uh, it's a defense, uh, when, if, if you're going to bring it up, a politically motivated prosecution. But in the, in the first instance, it's very hard to prove. That's why it took O'Hara 10 years uh, to clear his name. It's, it's a really tough thing. And yeah. Prosecutors, whether it's state or federal, really have unfettered discretion. There's no check on their power. The only check is a judge, and that's, you know, very narrowly with a constitutional ruling or something to that effect. But really, there's unfettered discretion among prosecutors. Uh, we're to continue, and we'll take your calls in a minute at 800-848-9222. When we come back, in Florida, you remember that uh, young man that murdered 17 people at a Parkland High School? Well, the, his death penalty trial has not even begun. We'll find out why when we talk with Dom Crispino, Richard Luthman, and Andrew McKenna. Straight ahead. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. 
Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined by three men who know the law very well, both sides of it, arguing it and being on the receiving end of its uh, of its justice. Uh, Dom Crispino is here, uh, Andrew McKenna is here, and Richard Luthman is here. Uh, very quickly, I want to get your gentleman's take on this. Uh, we all remember Nicholas Cruz, the the shooter at the at Douglas High School in uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. The judge presiding over that death penalty sentencing evidently reversed course yesterday, deciding to start over with jury selection, something that she said two days earlier would happen at the prosecution's request. Quote, I was going to grant the state's motion without prejudice, but at this time I'm going to dismiss the state's motion as premature. The prosecution requested starting the process over because the judge had excused 11 prospective jurors who said they could not follow the law before attorneys for both sides got to question them. The assistant state attorney, Carolyn McCann, said that a mistake was made calling the situation a miscommunication and filed a motion asking the judge to strike the jury panels. Quote, there's too many issues at this point. It's better to just start fresh. Uh, Richard, I believe you're in the Sunshine State, so I'll begin with you. Well, this is a, a capital case. So I think the judge did the right thing here because uh, there's the, the most scrutiny uh, on capital cases. Now, the, the, the point we're at is that there's no question as to guilt. He, he's pled guilty. The question here is a case of life and death. And it's a sentencing. So so the, the lawyers for Nicholas Cruz are trying to make the case uh, that he should basically serve life in prison. And that, that's really what's on the table. It's either going to be a death penalty or a life in prison. And to sustain a death penalty uh, decision by by the jury there, if there's any type of irregularity, there's any type of, of, of error at all, it, it's, uh, it, it could be fatal. So I think it's the right thing to start over and try to get this right rather than have to wait a couple of years and, and get sent back down for, for a new for a resentencing. Dom, what do you think? Yeah, it's a real blunder by the judge. I mean, just 11 people say, hey, we can't be fair. And say, OK, you can go. Right. I mean, you always turn them over to, to the attorneys and, and then they'll probe. Right. To see if they're really saying that, if they really believe that. And, you know, take them, take them at their word. Well, maybe not. A- Andrew McKenna, any thoughts on this one? My only thought is that they um, certainly had to fill out questionnaires prior to serving or being potential uh, jurors. And so there could have been something favorable uh, to the defendant in those questionnaires. So the lawyer should have been able to probe it. And uh, Richard's absolutely right. It's a death penalty case. It's the ultimate um, possible sentence, and it has to be completely right. So start from scratch. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. You have a question? Good morning, guys. Uh, here in New Year's, I saw a 
uh, a couple of times signs saying that uh, marijuana charges are going to be expunged. Uh, my question is... In New Jersey? In, not in New Jersey, right? In New Jersey, yeah, I live in Newark. Uh-huh. So my question, my question is that uh, for uh, if uh, prostitution uh, will be legal, uh, I have charges. I have a solicited prostitution. So they, the same with the same logic, my charge will be exposed to. Well, I guess it would depend on what the actual legislation says. I mean, right, gentlemen? I mean, so Alfredo's asking, I guess he's had prior charges for a prostitution arrest. If they legalize uh, prostitution, do those charges automatically get expunged? No. 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 That, so it, no. It, it would depend on what the legislation would say, Alfredo. Sorry. Thank All you. Right, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Mason, is out on Long Island. Hello, Dr. Mason. Frank, excellent show, and your guests are very intelligent, and that's why I wanted to call in. But I must say first, your son is the cutest in that tip of blog down the million you. dollar Thanks man. A lot. Real, I swear to God, yeah. All right, so why I called was I find you guys very intelligent, and I find um, I've been listening. And I don't know if you're all from New York. Dom, you're from New York, correct? Yes, I am. And you were disbarred in New York. Am yes. I correct? Yeah, I yes. believe all three of these gentlemen Ve- are vehemently disbarred, disbarred in New York. With, with an exclamation oh. point at the end. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Listen, listen. What, you know, the thing, I, I, I know a lot about this because one of my friends, he passed away, was an appellate judge in, um, he was like a lot older than me. He was in the 90s, but like a mentor, um, William Thompson on the second department. And he was very tough. So I would, because I was on the charity with him, with uh, judges in Brackett. And um, judges and lawyers against breast cancer, and I, um, a couple of my friends are physicians. Anyway, long story short, why don't you reapply for your license? It, because a disbarment in New York is really not a disbarment; it's only a seven-year suspension. Yeah, and I, I guess Andrew is in the best position to uh, to answer that because I know Dom and Richard are still at various stages and fighting their own legal cases. But Andrew, you're you've been out of prison for a while now. Uh, have you looked at uh, re re reapplying for your law license? I have looked. I'm a little bit different because I was never actually admitted in New York. I was admitted in Washington D.C. and Georgia. So I'm actually and federally. I guess and federally, right? Yeah. It, right. And so. Um, I'm actually going to apply to be admitted in New York, uphill battle, and believe it or not, I actually have to take a bar exam in July. Uh, so is that your yeah. plan? You're going to do that? That's my plan. Oh, all right. Well, my, first, right. my first hurdle. I mean, people have done, you know, 14, 15 years for attempted murder and they're, you know, rehabilitated and they're, you know, admitted to practice and doing well. So. Well, if they don't admit you, you, all you know have to do is attempt to kill somebody and then try again. <laughs> or, or, all you have to show is that you're a person of good moral conscience at this time. Then, right. then we're all out of luck. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Mason, thank you. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate Thanks, guys. it. Take care. Uh, let me, um, while we're talking about death penalty cases, there's two, one, two more cases that I want to bring to your attention before we run out of time. Fascinating case out of Texas. This was the front page of the New York Daily News on Sunday. Um, this woman who was slated to be executed last week, Melissa Lucio, I, I think the, the high criminal court in Texas, 
Texas, made the right decision on Monday by ordering a halt to this execution. This is a mother of 14, mother of 14, Hispanic woman convicted of killing her two-year-old child more than a decade ago in a case that has now drawn bipartisan outrage. The entire time, Melissa Lucio has maintained her innocence, and the calls for leniency have become widespread in Texas, which is rare when it comes to death penalty cases in uh, in Texas, but Democratic state legislators, Republican state legislators, and now the uh, the criminal court of the of appeals in Texas is pressing the pause button on her execution. What's the story here, Dom? Well, the story is that there probably was not a crime committed, and that there were uh, questionable interrogation techniques used, and that the, the the child died from a fall, and it was not her fault, and the police took advantage of her and got her to say, "I guess I did it." And that this is a problem. This is not an isolated case. There's, there, there was the case of Natasha Tiger in New York, who was the nurse who, who gave uh, her 10-year-old uh, disabled charge a, uh, a bath, and he, um, uh, his skin turned red, and uh, they said that she tried to scald him, and uh, she ended up taking a plea, and then it comes out later in a civil suit that her parents brought that the kid had a condition that brought that out. Wow. And then they won't vacate her plea. Um she, yeah, she took the plea because four months in jail is better than like seven. Sure, yeah, uh, seven years. There's a, there's, yeah. a, there's a case of Andrew Kowalski in Duchess, who I know it's not a famous case. I know his situation, the same thing. There's a case of the woman in Australia with the four kids who died over a period of time. Um, I, I, I don't recall her name right now, but um, there's all these medical experts saying that, yeah, four children may have died young in her charge, but... There's a genetic defect in the family. Mm. So now they're trying to get her pardoned because she's gone through all her, all her steps. So you think she may may end up getting her whole conviction vacated potentially? It sounds like it should happen. Yeah. I mean, uh, you talk about uh, I mean, being very close to being killed last week and now possibly because of the attention this case is getting, being close to being let go out of prison. Andrew, what do you, any thoughts on this one? Well, in this case, there wasn't actually a false confession, as Dom pointed out. Um, correctly, she made a statement that she may have been responsible for the death. But what people don't understand is they can never, no one can ever understand. Well, if you have, if you haven't committed a crime, how could you say that you committed a crime? Innocence Project, begun by Barry Shack and um, continued on, they found that out of their exonerations, twenty five percent of the cases there were false confessions. That the police and federal agents do expert jobs at interrogations. They isolate, they put pressure on, they get somebody to question their own truth. So they actually question people, start to question their own memory. And there's various types of uh, false confessions. You have persuaded false confessions. You have um, compliant false confessions. You're sitting in a room for hours and hours, and the police are essentially allowed to lie to you up to a point, up to a point until... It crosses over to the point where your confession's involuntary, and we can kind of get into the weeds with that. It's so common, Frank, that somebody's put under so much pressure, and they go through a psychological cognitive dissonance where they actually tell on themselves, knowing oftentimes that they didn't do it, and sometimes believing, coming to believe that they did do it. And in her case, she was a victim uh, of, of, of abuse, over many years, 
from husbands and boyfriends. And uh, she was particularly susceptible. And the judge in the case would not let that kind of evidence in, which would which would show why she did certain things during the interrogation, said certain things, and gave in at a certain point. Uh, Richard, any uh, any dissenting view on this case or the false confession issue generally? No, I, I think that uh, one of the big issues here uh, is that she's uh, asserted her actual innocence in this case, uh, and that uh, there's there was false testimony and evidence that was hidden at the trial. And, and the issue here becomes prosecutorial misconduct. There's a lot of prosecutorial uh, misconduct that goes on in cases. And and it looks like that this was a case where there was prosecutorial, uh, prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, the, the question is, does it really ever get punished? And, and the answer is no. Uh, prosecutors, you know, uh, are in a position where they can, you know, do some really shady stuff with, with almost, uh, with impunity, with with no real uh, consequences. Well, well, speaking of that, I want to make sure we touch upon this last case. I spoke about this on the radio the other day, and people weighed in with uh, with varying views. It's the story of Daryl Howard, who spent 24 years in prison for a double murder he didn't convi- uh, commit. His conviction was vacated uh, in 2016 after a judge found both police and prosecutorial misconduct. So last year, a federal jury agreed that the lead detective, Daryl Dowdy, had fabricated evidence and the jury awarded this fellow Daryl Howard six million dollars yet now the city of Durham in North Carolina is refusing to pay him how do they get away with this anybody that wants to answer that is welcome it's a stumper Frank right are they are they appealing the 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 award the argument the argument is this they're saying that by virtue of the fact that the there was police misconduct uh, and there was, uh, you know, falsification of evidence, planting of evidence that they don't have to cover the, 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 uh, the police officer. And this is a tactic that's been used by municipalities before where they basically tell the, the officer, uh, they, we're not covering you, number one. And number two, just, just, uh, uh, file for bankruptcy and this guy can't, can't get, get anything. So it's a real problem because this, they spent about four million dollars. You know, prosecuting this guy and, and, and defending defending the, the verdict, and they're still you know uh, indignant about the fact that that they've done anything wrong. Uh, the prosecutors. So, Richard, let me any- let me ask you a question: Is it because are they saying that he was acting outside the scope of his duties when he um, falsified the evidence? Is that the their argument? Yeah, the the, the city's refusing to indemnify him for acting. Okay. Uh, without yeah. outside the scope of his employment, because yes. in federal court you, you you can't sue a state, you can you can sue an individual for violation of civil rights, but you can only sue the municipality, I believe, under the respondeat superior um, theory, and yes. and that's that's where they're trying to d- disengage this thing and say, well, it's you know it's his problem because he was acting outside the scope of what we wanted him to do. All right, gentlemen, the hour has flown by. Uh, Dom, is that debate on May 2nd open to the public? Can anyone go, or is it It is, but I think it might be uh, sold out. All right, okay. Well, you, well, you have my, to my debate on May 6th before the Supreme Court in Richmond County is open to the public. Are you, are you coming up uh, for that, uh, back uh, back to uh, New York State, Richard, or are you doing that remotely? Oh, no, I'm going to probably be virtual that day. I can't leave but under federal uh, uh, 
Uh, keep keep us posted on that, and uh, Andrew, you'll have to keep us posted with how you're studying for the bar exam goes. Absolutely. Thank you all. Uh, coming up next hour, we got a lot to get to. We'll talk Atlantic City and death, uh, not at the same time. A lot to get to. This is the other side of midnight. Until next hour, uh, keep asking questions. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.